Well, good morning again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. As we transition our time to worship the, in the Word, let's take a moment to bow in prayer together. Um, Father, we thank you for our time this morning together in worship and song. Uh, we thank you for the reminder that our God is able, able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And so, Lord, we come to you being reminded of how much we need you and how much you are able to provide for us, especially seeing what you've done through the person and work of Christ, granting us salvation and everlasting life. Father, this morning as we transition to your word, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive the truth therein. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was growing up, I remember waiting for the school bus uh, during certain months of the year, looking up in the sky and seeing birds, migrating birds who were making their way from one place to another, flying in a V formation. And it always fascinated me watching them in those skies and later learned that the reason they did that, it's obvious I'm sure to us this morning, is because birds are better together. They're better together, and the reason is because as each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird behind it. Whenever these birds are separated from the formation, they feel the resistance and the drag of the wind. But when these birds are in that V formation, what they are allowed to do as a flock is they're able to increase uh, their, their range of flight by at least 71%. Isn't that amazing that they can go 71% further together than they could individually? And this morning, I wanted to just take some time to remind us that what is true of birds is also true of believers. God doesn't design us as believers to live in isolation, but to live in community one with another. And knowing that as believers, we're better together, I want to take some time to talk this morning from God's Word about what our responsibility is we've been given from God in relationship to one another and relationship to him. So I want to invite you in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 5 to 14 as we take time to do that together. As you make your way there in your Bibles, we're going to be wrapping up the letter of 1 Peter. And as we head there in our Bibles, if you recall, Peter has been writing to a people who have been facing growing hostility from the culture around them. They've been facing growing pressures of persecution, adversity of many kinds. And as Peter began the final chapter, chapter 5, in the first four verses, he wrote to encourage them that in the face of adversity and in the face of growing pressures of persecution, that God has provided spiritual leaders to shepherd the flock through those difficult times. Spiritual leaders called pastors or elders who are called to do just that, primarily through the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And having given these believers the responsibilities of spiritual leaders who are among them, Peter now transitions to talk about responsibilities of all believers in the local church in relationship to God and relationship to one another. And so as we take time to talk about what those responsibilities are, can we take time to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God this morning? 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, 
Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, I'd like to take some time just to talk about the responsibility God has given us as believers in the local church in relationship to God and our relationship to one another. Peter begins in verse 5 at the first half by reminding us where we picked off last time to follow the leadership of the local church. Peter puts it this way in verse 5 as we introduced it last time a couple weeks ago and we're back there this morning. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. The manner in which Peter instructs and exhorts these believers to follow the leadership of the church is first by introducing it by means of connecting verse 5 to the previous four verses. The word likewise there connects us to the roles and responsibilities that Peter has already listed for these elders or pastors in the church. As we said earlier, the primary role of elders or pastors in the local church <coughs> is to shepherd the flock of God. The manner in which they are to shepherd the flock of God is to do whatever a shepherd does. Shepherds feed the flock, they protect the flock, they watch over the flock, and pastors are to do the same. They are to feed, they are to nourish, they are to protect, they are to lead, and they do that primarily through the instruction of the Word of God. Uh, in those first four verses, Peter instructed these spiritual leaders in the local church, elders and pastors, to do so willingly, to do so eagerly, not to lord it over those whom they are shepherding, but rather to set an example before them in anticipation of the fact that Jesus, the chief shepherd, is coming back again. And they will give an account before the, the Lord. And that account is not an account unto condemnation, but account, an account unto commendation. That is the reward of these faithful under-shepherds as they look forward to seeing their chief shepherd. And so along those same lines, Peter now says, likewise, I'm still talking about the same subject. As I've discussed the role and responsibility of elders, let me take some time to talk about the responsibility of spiritual leaders. Now, while Peter is referring to all believers in the church, he singles out those who he describes as young people. 
Now, the young people here in our text could either refer to those who are young in terms of physical age or spiritual stage. But regardless, while he's referring to all, he's referring specifically here to those who are younger. And probably the reason for that is when we're younger in the faith or younger in age, we tend not to want to follow the leadership of the local church, but rather to go our own way. And so referring to all believers, but singling out those who are young people, he said, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, as we've been walking through the letter of 1 Peter, Peter has been using this term submission quite a bit. It's the Greek term upatasso. It's a military term that refers to aligning yourself under or placing yourself under the authority or the leadership of another. Uh, starting in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, going all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, Peter encouraged Christians, believers, to submit themselves to governing authorities. He instructed later in the chapter of chapter 2, Christian servants to submit to their masters, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, for wives to submit to their own husbands. Now Peter tells the believers in the local church to align themselves under the authority and leadership of those whom God has appointed as elders and pastors in the local church. And what that basically means is simply to follow their lead to allow them to set the pace and the path. And as they go about setting the pace and path of ministry in accordance with the word of God, uh, which reveals the will of God, that they would then lead the church, feed the flock, protect the flock, and do all that a shepherd is called to do. And so first and foremost, the first responsibility of believers in the local church, members of the local church, is to follow the leadership of the church as God has appointed pastors and elders in this manner. This morning, I'd like to, to give just a couple takeaways for what that looks like practically for us. The first way to do that is first by entrusting yourself to the spiritual care of your pastors by joining the membership of the local church. Um, folks often ask the question, where does membership show up within the scriptures? I'd like to suggest it shows up right here. Whether membership is formal in a local church or informal, it is biblical. If I could define membership for you, it would be this way. Membership is, is the means by which you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ and is the means by which you entrust yourself to the spiritual care of the pastors that God has appointed in the local church or elders that God has appointed in the local church to shepherd your soul. Hebrews 13.7 says this, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. As you align yourself under the leadership and you align yourself under the authority of the shepherds of the local flock, do so as you are reminded of what their duty is and what your duty is. Second way to apply this would be this way. Entrust yourself to the spiritual care of your pastors by praying for them as they have the responsibility to set the path and the pace of ministry. 
Now, if you ever hang out with a shepherd, I don't know about you, but I haven't spent much time with actual shepherds. They don't go around and in the morning talk to their flock and say, okay, we're going to uh, talk about where we're going to graze today. How many of you want to graze over in that field? And how many of you want to graze in that field? And we'll, we'll see which one we're going to do based on the number of baas that we get. No, you don't see that. The, the leaders of the local church, informed by the word of God in light of the will of God, are to set the pay, path and the pace for ministry. That is a heavy task to carry on the elders or pastor's shoulders, and so please pray for us. And as you pray for us, you entrust yourself to the care of the spiritual leadership of the local church. Church. And so first, the first responsibility of believers in the local church is to follow the leadership that God has appointed, those who have been appointed to care for your soul through the teaching and preaching of the word of God in alignment with Hebrews 13, 7. Second responsibility that we've been given is to clothe ourselves with humility. In verse, the rest of verse 5 into verse 6, we talk about clothing ourselves in humility in relationship to one another. And then in verse 7, we'll talk about clothing ourselves in humility in relationship to God. First, let's go ahead and pick up verse 5. It says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Now, when it says be submissive to one another, it doesn't automatically negate the unique role and responsibilities and the relationship between pastors and those within the local body. But it does mean that we submit to one another. What does it mean to submit to one another? Well, Peter says it clearly in the next line, be clothed with humility. Now, that Greek term to be clothed is a, a word that means to put on something like tie on an apron or, or put on certain clothes. And when you think about this idea of clothing yourself with humility, you can't help but think about who's writing this. It's the Apostle Peter. And we know Peter, during the three, minute, three years of Jesus' ministry, spent much time with Jesus and got to see what service looks like. Selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional service and love. Uh, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, you may recall that Jesus in John chapter 13 was with his disciples in the upper room. And as they were about to enjoy the Passover meal, or were enjoying the Passover meal, Jesus, while at the table, he leaves. And as he leaves, he takes off his outer garment in John chapter 13, and he puts on, ties on a towel. He puts on the garment of the least-ranked servant in the room. You see, in those days, if you were going to be hospitable to your guests, what you would do is uh, you would have a servant or the slave, the least-ranked servant in the room, um, wash the feet of your guests. That was a good way to show hospitality. But instead of having the least-ranked servant in the room, Jesus takes on the role. And as he leaves, puts on the garment of the least-ranked servant, he begins to walk around the table and one by one washes the feet of his disciples. And there are all 12 there, even Judas, who's about to betray him, but Jesus still in humility washes his feet. If you remember, he got to Peter. And you remember what Peter said? Peter said, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. 
Why? Well, Jesus wasn't just talking about his feet. He's talking about his heart. Jesus is going to serve these disciples in the ultimate way by dying on the cross for their sins. And so Peter says, Jesus, if, you're go- if, if I don't have any part in you, if you don't wash my feet, wash my hands and my head, wash everything. And Jesus says, if I've washed your feet, That's enough. That's sufficient. He's not just talking about his feet. He's talking about his heart. And then Jesus said this, as I've washed your feet, wash one another's feet. To clothe yourself with humility is to take off the outer garment of pride that will hinder you from serving your fellow believers with the unique spiritual gifts that God has given you and putting on the outer garment of the least ranked servant in the room. Is there anything hindering you from serving with your spiritual gifts in the local church? Is there anything hindering you from serving your your neighbors, family members, or friends, those whom God has placed in your circle of influence to serve them, even though you know that it's going to be uncomfortable, it's not going to be easy, it's going to take some time, God calls us to take off the outer garment of pride and put on the uh, uh, the garment of the least-ranked servant in the room and clothe ourselves with humility and service one to another. Clothe yourself with humility. Peter goes on to say, by quoting Proverbs 3.34, he says, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists those who are proud, too proud to serve the various needs in the local body. Too proud to say, hey, I've got too much time, I'm too busy, I've got too many things to do than to serve in the local church. And so God resists the proud. Those who think of themselves better than others who walk in the room and say, hey, I'm not interested in how I can serve, I'm interested in how you can serve me. Can I suggest this morning, when you take off the outer garment of pride and you put on the garment of the least ranked servant in the room, you're no longer as critical as you were when you walked in. Because what we tend to do is we live in a consumer mentality Christianity where we walk into a church and say, these are the top things that I need in the church in order for me to do well. I need a good children's program for my children. I need good small groups that can... Uh, build community. And those are important things. Those are things you could, should look at. You should look for a church that is grounded and rooted in the word of God and teaches and preaches the word of God, but not just seeking how the church can serve you, but seeking how you can serve the church. You say, hey, their small group ministry is doing okay, but it could do better, and God has gifted me in a unique way to lead in that ministry. You know, when it comes to the youth or the children, when it comes to the outreach ministry, there's some more things that we need to be doing as a church, and God has placed it on my heart, and this church is not doing what it's called to do, but I'm ready to step in and to fill in the gaps. God resists the proud, but then it says, gives grace to the humble. When it says God gives grace to the humble, it's speaking of God's unmerited favor. It's speaking of God's approval. 
You know, this past Friday, I got to attend a graduation ceremony, and it was just neat to see those who are graduating, and I know there are more graduations going to come. This is something to look out for. As, as the, the students were graduating and they met up with their parents, boy, was it a wonderful moment to see the faces of those parents light up in joy and being so proud of their graduate. And getting to that point and getting to that accomplishment, that's what we're reminded of that God's face lights up when we're serving with the gifts that God has given us. When we take off the garment of pride and put on the garment of humility and service and serve with the gifts God has given to us, you can see God beaming from heaven with a big smile on his face, looking down on his sons and daughters, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we long to hear when we meet the Lord, enter into the joy of the Lord. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Something we're reminded about pride that will hinder our service is Proverbs 16, 18. Is pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Adrian Rogers once told a story of a, a, a frog in the cold Minnesota mud. And he was just freezing this frog, and the frog uh, saw some Canadian geese who had come by, and uh, the frog said, hey, where are you guys headed? And they said, we're headed south for the, for the winter. And the frog said, hey, um, can I go with you? And they kind of laughed at him. They said, you don't have wings. You can't fly. And he said, well, I have an idea. I don't have wings, but I have an idea. How about this? How about you, uh, one Canadian geese, you put a twig in your mouth, and this other Canadian geese, you put a, a twig in your mouth, and I, I'm going to bite onto that twig, and then we'll fly together. And those Canadian geese took flight, and that frog was holding on. And somewhere in Indiana, as they were flying over, there was a farmer just standing out in the field looking up. And as he's looking up, he, 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 he says, well, isn't that something? He says, what in the world? I wonder whose idea that was. And the frog in that moment said, mine. <laughs> Pride comes before a fall. It also uh, reminds me of uh, a, a man and woman who were looking to get married. And as they were looking to get married, they wanted to be honest with each other. So they were confessing their sins to one another. And the, the husband-to-be turned to his wife and said, I just want to share with you, I, I struggle with pride. That's one of my struggles. And he said, early in the morning, I wake up and after I get ready, I look at myself a little bit too long in the mirror his wife-to-be looked at him and said, Honey, that's not a problem with pride. That's a problem of the imagination. <laughs> pride comes before a fall. God, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'd encourage us as believers in the local church to take off the outer garment of pride that will hinder you from serving the needs of others in the local church and put on the garment of humility and service that may be something where you have to sacrifice your time, sacrifice uh, your efforts. Sometimes if you're going to be discipling somebody, sometimes you're available in the middle of the night, but take time to serve one another as God has gifted you. So first, we're encouraged to clothe ourselves with humility in relationship to others. Now we're also encouraged to um, humble ourselves in relationship to God. It says this in verse 7, 
casting all your care, or, or verse six, excuse me. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. What we're encouraged to do is humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. When we're talking about the mighty hand of God, we're talking uh, anthropomorphically. We're talking about God in his sovereignty and God in his power. We're reminded that God is all-powerful. There is no one like our God. And how we are commanded to humble ourselves is under his mighty hand, is under his sovereignty. Now, remind ourselves who Peter is writing to. These individuals are facing hard times. Hostility of the culture is growing stronger because of their profession of faith in Jesus. And the pressures of persecution are continuing to rise. And what they are encouraged to do is to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and fulfill that responsibility means that we are willing first to accept God's will. Accept God's will. James 1, 2 through 6 remind us of this. Whether we receive hardship or blessing, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's what it means to humble yourself under the hand of God. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. If you're going to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you must be willing to accept his will for your life. Even in those moments of hardship and difficulty, you don't rejoice for the suffering. You rejoice for the results the suffering brings, knowing that God is at work. We see that in the book of Job. Job loses everything, including his children. And in Job 1.21, this is a good example of what it looks like for a man to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. Can't ever imagine losing one child, let alone all of your children. Job says this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What perspective to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In Job chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, when his wife tells him, Job, you've got nothing left, just curse God and die. He says this, do you still hold fast to my integrity? Curse God and die, she says. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What we're reminded of in this text, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is to accept the will of God even in those times of intense suffering and in those times of adversity, knowing God is working in and through them. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by accepting his will. Secondly, by accepting his purpose. What's God's purpose in allowing adversity and blessing into your life? In Romans 8, 28 to 29, it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among the brethren. God's purpose in allowing all things in your life is in order to conform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
whether adversity or blessing, whether hardship or good times, all things work together for God to make you into the man or woman of God that he created you to be. That's why he saved you, to conform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So humble yourself under the hand of God by accepting his will, by accepting his purpose and accepting his timing. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that what he may exalt you. But the key word there, the key phrase there is in due time. In due time is a tough one. Because it's one thing to know that suffering is temporary. It's another thing to know that, it's, that exaltation and, and relief is going to come in due time in God's timing. Now we know God's never early. He's never late. He's always on time. But sometimes it feels like it. And what we're reminded this morning is that we are to wait on the Lord because as, as intense as suffering may feel or as intense adversity may feel, even in the face of growing pressures of persecution in due time, God will exalt those and reward those who have suffered with him. They will also be glorified with him as well. And that is the hope of salvation that they have. You think of guys like Moses. He was a shepherd for 40 years before God promoted him to go over to Egypt and to deliver God's people from the Egyptian hand. You think of guys like Joseph, who after his brother sold him into slavery at the age of 17, spent time as a servant, as a slave, spent time being falsely accused, spent time in prison and God, after 13 years, or at least 13 years, elevated him and promoted him from the pit to the pinnacle of power as he was elevated to the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, second to Pharaoh. God will exult in his time. And unfortunately, when it says exult in his time, that just might be when Jesus comes back again in glory. Whether we go to him or he comes back for us, he will exalt us in due time. But we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, trusting his timing. What does that look like? When you are humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, how do you know you're doing that? Take a look at the next verse. It says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. If you want to know if you are not humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, instead of casting your cares on him, you're carrying the weight on your own. What will hinder you from finding relief from the anxieties and the cares of life is your own pride, thinking that you can carry the weight on your own shoulders. I got this. God saved me and I got to just press through. I need to try harder and harder and harder. But when we come to the end of ourselves, we can finally start relying on him. Cast all your cares upon him. It's the idea of taking off that heavy weight that you've been carrying around and laying it on the shoulders of God. Can I ask you this question? Do you believe God can carry your cares? Sometimes we don't act like it. We think we, we got to carry it all on our own. Uh, do you really believe that God is enough, that God is powerful enough to carry your anxieties, to carry your cares, that you can cast it upon him? 
Stephen Cole, quoting George Mueller, once said this. Mueller used to tell the story of a boy who was walking along the road carrying a heavy load. A man came along in a horse-drawn cart and offered him a ride. The boy climbed in the cart, but he kept the heavy load on his shoulders. When the man asked him why he didn't put the load on the cart, the boy replied that he didn't want to burden the horse. Cole goes on to say, we've climbed into the cart of salvation through Christ. He is, in fact, bearing our load. Why don't we let go and put it all on him? He saved you. He carries the weight of the burden of your sin. He paid the debt that you owe. How much more can you cast your cares upon him? That word cares in the Greek can be translated anxieties. Whenever you see anxiety in the scripture, it literally means a divided mind. You know what I'm talking about if you've struggled with anxiety and worry and the stresses of life. Your mind is so divided that you can't think clearly. And you know what God says, cast your cares upon me. Humble yourself under my mighty hand. Recognize that I'm all sovereign, I'm all knowing, and I'm all powerful. And I am enough to bear, carry your burdens. His burden is light, his yoke is Easy, cast your cares upon him. Why? Number one, because he is able. And number two, because he cares for you. We sang that this morning. He's able. As you were singing it, did you believe it? When you think about the cares that are weighing on your shoulders, is he enough? And the scriptures tell us he is. And the invitation is to humble yourself under his mighty hand and experience the relief that will come where he will free you, deliver you from the cares and the anxieties that weigh you and I down. He is able. How able is he? In Ephesians. 3 verse 20, it says, Now him to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the, that work, the, the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Listen, you ask him to carry your burdens, you cast your care on him, and you ask him to, to just relieve you, he'll do exceedingly abundantly more than you ask or think. He's able and he cares for you. Sometimes in the midst of the pain and the suffering when we feel as if we're suffering in isolation and God doesn't care, this is a reminder. Don't believe what you feel. Put your trust in the fact of his word. God loves you. He cares for you. And God is closest in those times of suffering because he's near to the broken hearted. If you've got some cares, you've got some anxieties, cast your cares Upon him, and you do that by humbling yourself under his mighty hand. And so, clothe yourself with humility. That's a second responsibility. You clothe yourself in relationship to fellow believers in your service, and you clothe yourself in relationship to God by accepting his will, accepting his purpose, accepting his time, and casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you and for me. Can I give us one application in regards to? How we can serve one another as God has called us to stake off the apron of pride and put on the apron of humility. Uh, get to know the ministries of our church. You know, interesting thing this morning after church today, 
Uh, in the gym, we want to invite our entire church over to head over to the gym where we're going to have what we call a ministry fair. This ministry is an op- fair is an opportunity to just see what is going on at Twin Rivers. And also, if you're not serving in a particular ministry or would like to diversify your service in the ministries of Twin Rivers Church to get to know some of the people at the different tables who are in charge of the different ministries and to take time to learn how you can get connected into the body. If you're here today and you're not a member of Twin Rivers, but perhaps you would like to, we're going to have a membership table where um, Jason Cunningham, one of our elders, is going to be there, and you can have a conversation with him. We're going to, he's got the date for when our next membership class will be, and you can sign up for that. Um, if you want to talk to a pastor before that, you can always talk to one of us. Uh, the membership, the, the ministry fair is for all of us. Well, just to list some of the different ministries that will be there that you can go around and chat with. We'll have hospitality, and that includes everything from meeting people and greeting people and providing snacks and delicious treats and just making people feel welcome. We've got children's ministry First impressions, discipleship, marriage mentors, a prayer, youth, worship, groups, men, women, women, missions, outreach. And so there's just a wide variety of ministries in the church that we'd invite you to come and check out. The second thing I'd encourage you to do is make service a priority in your life. Make service in the local church a priority to say, hey, I'm not just going to serve my family. I'm not just going to serve... uh, in the workplace, but I'm going to serve in the local church because God has gifted me uniquely to serve. And so make that service a priority. And my prayer this morning is as you leave this place, you would be able to ask, ask and answer or answer two questions. The first one is this, as you leave this place, that you would be able to answer this question. What is my ministry at Twin Rivers Church? Maybe your ministry is prayer. Maybe your ministry is children's. Maybe your ministry is youth or outreach. If I were to ask you, what is your ministry at Twin Rivers Church? I pray that you would know what your ministry is and what your responsibilities are. The second question is, how is God using your ministry to make disciples? Our mission at Twin Rivers isn't just to go about making everybody feel welcome and have a wonderful social club. But our desire is to make disciples. So whether you serve in children's ministry and youth and outreach, whether you're a greeter at the door, filling the chairs with the different pencils or the different things in our chairs, that you would say, this is how I'm making disciples through the ministry that God has given me. Every ministry at Twin Rivers Church matters. Those who serve and you can see them and those who serve and you can't. So, first two responsibilities, to follow the leadership of the church, be clothed with humility, and then thirdly this morning, resist the devil. Resist the devil, that's our responsibility, beginning in verse 8. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. First, how do we resist the devil? First, by being sober, Don't be intoxicated by the distractions of the world. Don't be distracted by or intoxicated by the desires of your flesh or the pleasures of this world, but be sober-minded. How do you stay sober-minded as you resist the devil? By means of staying grounded and rooted in the Word of God. 
Staying grounded and rooted in prayer and staying grounded and rooted in a body of believers who love you and who care for you. Be sober-minded. Secondly, be vigilant. To be vigilant means to be alert. You can't be spiritually sleepy. You got to be awake because we know that we have an enemy and he's going around seeking whom he may devour. Now, our struggle I think in a lot of churches or among many Christians is we do one or two things with the devil. Firstly, we overestimate him or we underestimate him. Some of us overestimate him and blame him for everything, you know? My, uh, after I ate my food and I have a stomach ache, man, the devil keeps bothering me and I can't get rid of him. Sometimes we overestimate what the devil is doing. Other times we underestimate him, ignore him all together. We shouldn't overestimate him. We shouldn't underestimate him. We need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. Why? The text goes on to say in verse 8, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion. How is he described first as our adversary? He is your enemy. Let me tell you this this morning. Your spouse is not your enemy. They're on your same team. The devil is your enemy. In your relationships and those different things that you have going those things, the devil is your enemy. Make sure you know who is your friend and who is your foe. The devil is your adversary. That's the first thing. Adversary in scripture can be translated Satan. So whenever you hear the word Satan, we're referring to Satan as an adversary. If you go to Revelation 12, 9 through 10, you get to hear about um, Satan's final fall from heaven and also his character traits. It says in Revelation 12, verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who, receives the, who deceives the whole world. He, has, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard with a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Satan, the devil, is our accuser he even accuses us before God and so because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion uh, so he's he's our adversary he's our accuser so devil means walks around like a roaring lion and so don't underestimate Satan some people ignore him altogether Satan is described here as a roaring lion I'd like to suggest this morning that Sometimes we think we're more powerful than Satan. I'd like to suggest we're not apart from Christ. And so what we like to do is we like to go battle with Satan. Our job is not to battle Satan. Our job is to resist him. And we resist him by means of our relationship with God. And so we go into details for how to go ahead and fight, knowing that he's a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It says resist him. How? Steadfast in the faith. You don't have to run from him. You don't have to bind him. You don't have to get in the ring and fight him. But what you do need to do is stand steadfast in your faith. An interesting way to battle Satan and to win every time is, is this unique observation. And I know it's pretty obvious, but verse uh, 6 is a verse that precedes verse 9. Is that pretty, pretty good observation right there? 
And the interesting thing is in verse six, it tells us we are to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. I would like to suggest this morning that you cannot stand against the devil or against Satan, the one who's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, if you're not first submitting yourself and bowing yourself under the mighty hand of God. If you want to win the battle and win every time, don't get into the ring. Resist, stand steadfast in your faith. You see in Ephesians 6, you put on the full armor of God. Get prepared for battle every day. Get your sword ready. Get to know the word of God. (coughs) It goes on to say, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And so we're reminded they are facing pressures of persecution. And what they're reminded of as they resist Satan is they are not alone. That there are others suffering as well, but that suffering is temporary in light of the eternal glory that they will experience, which will come. James 4, 7 through 10 puts it this way, therefore submit to God. In other words, humble yourself under his mighty hand. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Walk in repentance. Cry out to the Lord, not just confessing your sins, but having a contrite heart broken before God. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So resist the enemy by means of submitting to the Lord, staying steadfast in your faith and being reminded that you and I are not alone. If I could give you just a couple takeaways there in light of exercising this responsibility, the first would um, be this. Uh, Resist Satan by admitting he is real. I want to suggest this morning that we have a real enemy. He is our adversary, our accuser, and a roaring lion. Secondly, remember, before you stand against Satan, you first have to bow before God. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. And then thirdly, make God his word and the fellowship of believers a priority. And it's amazing how God will help you win the battle and win every time. And so resist the devil. Then finally, this morning, the final responsibility is to rest in the promises of God. Uh, Let's go through these promises as we conclude together. Um, Beginning in verse 10, we get to hear a doxology. It says, but may the God of all grace, the first promise we are to rest in is that the God that we worship and serve is a God of all grace. He's the one who provides us not just saving grace. He's the one who provides us sustaining grace. And the same one who saves us is the one who will sustain us to the end. He justified us. He is sanctifying us. And one day he will glorify us. Rest in the promise that he is a God of grace. Secondly, rest in the promise that you have been called to be with him in glory. It says, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Rest in that calling. That no matter how bad things look, no matter how off track you may find yourself, the God who saved you is the one who will sustain you. Thirdly, rest in the promise that suffering and adversity and troubles of this world is only temporary. 
He goes on to say, after you suffered a while. What an encouragement this must have been for the readers of Peter's day who are facing growing hostility from the culture because they claim the name of Christ. Some of them have lost their jobs because of their faith in Jesus. Others have been slandered for following Christ. Still others are, might, might even lose their life. And we know, history tells us, that things are going to get progressively worse, but they are to rest in the promise that their suffering is only temporary. No matter how bad things get in terms of suffering and adversity, the reminder of the scriptures is it doesn't compare to the eternal glory that we will experience forever and ever. Even if you should suffer for 70, 80, 90 years, that doesn't compare to the billions and trillions and years and years to come in glory. And so after you have suffered a while, it goes on to say, that God may perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Rest in the promise that God is building your character and conforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what each of these terms mean. What God is doing through your adversity and your suffering is he's perfecting you. He's making you look more like Jesus. He's building your character. He's establishing you. He's grounding you and rooting you in your faith in who he is as you continue to trust him. He's strengthening you by his grace, empowering and enabling you and sustaining you, and he's settling you by means of allowing you to build your faith on a firm foundation. When it talks about settling, uh, it means that we are building our, our, our lives and our faith not on the sand, but on the rock of Jesus Christ. Rest in the promise that God is, is building your character and conforming you to the likeness of Jesus Christ, and then rest in the promise that God will be glorified. Listen to this. It says to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I pray in the midst of whatever you're facing, good times or hard times, you can say to God, be the glory. Because you can believe that God is being glorified in and through it. You may not see how now, but he is glorifying himself through it. And then lastly, rest in the promise of community that he has provided and peace that he has promised. Let's complete verse 12. Peter concludes with a farewell greeting. He says, by Silvanus or Silas, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Peter says, you know Silvanus. You know, Silas, who's writing this for me, who's correcting some of the grammar, who is the one penning this. Now I want you to hear this note from me. This is a greeting to you. What encouragement that would have been to them. So he encourages them by greeting them with, with uh, Silas, Silvanus, and also he reminds them of the reason he's writing. You know, if, you're, if it's your first time here and you haven't been with us through the letter of 1 Peter, he gives us a summary of what 1 Peter was about, testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Being reminded in the midst of the adversity and the struggle that their salvation is sure and that God will bring them through to the very end. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, this is probably referring to the church at Rome, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark. John Mark, my son, greet one another with a kiss of 
love. Now, when it says greet one another with a kiss of love, it was men with men and women with women. Whether or not you want to express that yourself today, what it basically means if we were going to apply it is greet one another affectionately. Greet one another like a brother or sister in Christ. How you greet your family is how you should greet your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you give them a hug, give them a hug. Give them a high five. Greet them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he concludes with the promise of peace. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This morning, you are given the promise of peace. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't know if your mind's divided in light of the anxieties or worries or cares of this world, but God promises you his peace. The question you have to ask yourself, is God telling the truth? Because if he is telling the truth and you don't have his peace, take a moment to receive it. This morning, I want to invite you as we close today, if you haven't taken your first step with God, I want to invite you to do just that. In order to experience his peace and to cast your cares on him and to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you first have to make that first step and say, Jesus, I need you. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. But the good news of the gospel is that while the wages of sin is death, an eternity without God and his people forever, the gift of God is everlasting life. Can I invite you this morning, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, to admit your need for him and to admit that he's the only solution to your problem. This morning, if you haven't been baptized and you want to make a public profession of faith before all believers, baptism doesn't save you. While it's not required for salvation, it is required for obedience. If you want to take your next step with God and be baptized, we'd love to follow up with you. Maybe you want to join us in membership or serve in the local church. Whatever that next step may be, join us on this journey as we seek to honor and glorify God in everything we say and everything we do. Can we take time to pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for the instruction of your word and the reminder of our responsibilities in light of it. We're reminded, God, in light of your word, we are better together because you created us that way. We are members of one another. And so, Father, in light of that, I want to pray for anyone who, whose heart is ready and open to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord to forgive them of their sins. I pray that they can make this profession of faith in this moment. Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. My sin is what separates me from you. But I know that's why Jesus came from heaven to earth and died on the cross. He died in order to bridge the gap between me and a holy God. I make Jesus my Savior, who's the one who will forgive my sins. I make him my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, I pray for anyone else this morning who needs to take their next step with God. Maybe that's serving in the local church. Maybe that's membership. Maybe that's getting baptized. We pray, Lord, that you would impress it on their hearts and in obedience to your word that they would make the commitment and the decision to follow you as you've called them to. Lord, as we head out and uh, as we go out to this ministry fair, we want to pray for the food. We pray for the pizza that it would... Nourish our bodies, Lord, by your amazing grace. We pray, Lord, for our fellowship, and we pray for the ministries of Twin Rivers Church, that you would, in everything we do here at this church, glorify yourself as we make disciples who know God 
and make him known. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.